This episode of the 10A Podcast is sponsored by TOC Public Relations, the only PR, marketing, and strategic communication firm that specializes in working with public safety agencies, associations, and businesses. TOCPR is also the parent company of Law Enforcement Social, which provides social media, PIO, and content creation training for all public safety. Be sure to check them out at TOCPublicRelations.com and LawEnforcement.Social. This week's episode of the 10A Podcast is dedicated in the loving memory of Deputy First Class Glenn Hilliard and Corporal Michael Paredes and Officer Joseph Santana, who lost their lives this week. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. This week on the 108 podcast, Officers First with Chief Ed Gepper. I like to say tactical, operational side of the house was my expertise. Chief wasn't the goal for me. I didn't even think I would attain it, but I always made my way back to the roll call. That's where I was most comfortable and liking to go. The higher you get, the less comfortable they are with you in the room. Always the atmosphere I enjoy the most because it's just, to me, it's policemen being real. The first time I told the assistant chief, he just laughed at me, said that I'm not uh, next in line and go back to work. That pissed me off. Good evening and welcome to episode 237 of the 108 Podcast. What is going on, everybody? It's your host, 108, and we have an amazing episode for you today. Uh, the My guest today is the chief of Fisher's Police Department in Indiana, and we're going to get to him in just a few moments. But first, I want to catch you up on a few things and uh, talk a little bit, and then we'll get to Chief Ed Gephardt of Fisher's Police Department. So the first thing I want to say to you guys is I apologize. Last week, I was not feeling very well when I recorded the intro and outro uh, and when I put the episode together. And I, I know, I know that the episode suffered for it. The interview was great. Listen, I was away on vacation, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. Um, the interview was with Adam from Police Post. Please go back and listen to it. That that episode actually did not get a lot of traction. Um, I took a week off Instagram, and this happens all the time. When I take some time off Instagram, and even if I pop in just to drop the episode information when it comes out, uh, the views go down, everything. It doesn't perform the way it's supposed to. It's the Instagram algorithm. I don't think it has anything to do with you guys. Um, I don't think just suddenly people just stopped caring. I, you know, I don't think that's that case at all. So that being said... Um, go back, listen to that episode. The beginning and ending are not my best. Honestly, I don't even know what I talked about. I think I just rambled for about five minutes each way. Uh, but the interview is amazing. The interview was so good. We talk about high performance and actually Adam's going to be back on next year for season three. Uh, we've talked about a little bit. Season three is going to be focused on, uh, personal growth and development, mental health, and, uh, basically everything that I'm focusing on personally 
as we move forward. As I move forward in my life, I'm, I'm taking 10-8 with me, and so that's how we're going to do it. So he's going to be back on, but this is going to be the first episode. You want to listen to it because it's going to lean into what we're talking about next year or in a few months when he comes back on. So go check it out. Uh, like I said, I was not feeling very well unofficially or officially. I had a, I had an upper respiratory infection, never got tested. So I couldn't tell you if it's whatever one way or another, but I, I did go on vacation. I was in the, uh, Norfolk, uh, Chesapeake, Virginia beach area. Uh, met a lot of great people up there in the law enforcement community, a couple of people that follow me. So I'm going to give a couple shout outs, but I want to talk about the trip a little bit, uh, because it's a 13 hour drive from, from my front door to where we stayed. That's a long time to be in the car. And, uh, and I had a lot of thoughts. So, uh, I figured and, and fun thoughts, just, just kind of things that I noticed, uh, along the way. So, for everyone that doesn't know, I know I've mentioned it for throughout this year, but I live in Southwest Florida or in the Tampa Bay general region. So leaving from Tampa, going up, uh, I 75. And then we crossed through, um, we took 301 North all the way to I 10, cut over to 95 and then went North. So doing so we went on 301 North where we got on, which 301 passes through my house. Like it's, it's right down the road from my house. But where we were, it's where Stark is, it's where Waldo is. So if anyone who's in Florida, they know about Stark and Waldo. Everyone that doesn't, uh, basically, they are two major speed traps. And this is my first time ever driving through them. It's in the back roads. Anyone who is a deputy in Alachua, Marion, um, Branford County, all those kind of go through it. Uh, I want to say... I don't think Sumter passed through where we were. But anyway, so the way the roads go, it's it's just country roads, right? It's 301 is just a straight country road, and you go nothing, 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 nothing. Small town with, like, three gas stations and maybe a Dollar General, and there's a stoplight, and then you go through, and then it's nothing, 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 same thing. And it just repeats for about four times, and then before you know it, you're at I-10. Which is fine, but the roads, they go from 65 to 55 to 45. It's ba 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 go through the town, through the red light, and then it goes back up. 45, 55, 65, and then you go. A few times through that, you see signs that say, speed strictly enforced. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, but I've heard about these speed traps, and I'm not getting jammed up, you know? So, uh, but I didn't, going up there, which we left 5 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I didn't see a single cop, trooper, deputy, city cop. I didn't see a single cop. I think I saw one FHP trooper in the Jacksonville area, but that's about it. Then when we crossed into Georgia, now anybody who's ever driven through Georgia, whether it be through 95, 75 or any other roads, um, everyone knows that Georgia Department of Public Safety or the Georgia State Troopers, they are vicious. They are. They're rough. Uh, Georgia's speed laws are rough. And so, uh, and, and there were just cops everywhere everywhere and we're not just talking troopers we're talking there were city cops county cops on the highway doing work and i was just like holy cow like if, if you want to go to a state that has a lot of cops it's georgia and and it's that's what i noticed this entire trip but definitely uh they're they're always on the highway always i don't know what if, i'm assuming if they're on the highway that means there's a lot of cops in city too so if you want to go to a place that's got a lot of cops go to georgia it seems like they're everywhere and i've I've talked to a lot of cops from all over Georgia, and that seems to be the case. 
So then we went to the Carolinas, and I hate driving through the Carolinas. I've driven, I've driven from uh, Florida to New Jersey a bunch of times and back down. And the worst part of the drive is going to the Carolinas, and I never knew why. Why are these states? Why do they take so long? I don't understand. I figured it out on this trip. Georgia, uh, I ninety five in Georgia are two lanes. That's it. I'm sorry, Carolinas, two lanes, uh, north and south, two lanes. Okay, and the trucks, the, the semi-trucks are allowed to be in the left lane. So if you have two semi-trucks going next to each other, you are stuck. And that happened a couple times on our trip. And while, you know, you and this this is more coming south, but you're driving so slow. And then you hit Georgia where the, the road opens back up. That's great. But then there's cops everywhere. So you can't you can't go up to speed and make up any time that you lost in, in the Carolinas. So frustrating. So then we got into Virginia. We actually didn't stay on 95 very long in Virginia, and then we went and got to uh, the Virginia Beach area, which very nice. Um, like I said, I met up with a couple uh, Virginia State troopers who hooked me up with some patches. I met up with uh, a guy who got me a patch for Virginia Beach PD, uh, and I also met up with someone for the Navy police uh, while I was in there. Uh, I was going to meet up with a dude from Chesapeake. That didn't work very well. Um, we went brewery hopping in Norfolk. Uh, dude, if you like craft beer, go to Norfolk, go to Portsmouth, go to Virginia Beach. They're just all over the place. There is a spot called Thin Brew Line. I didn't make it there. Um, hopefully, we'll go back up there and I can check it out. But we, we hit like probably seven or eight breweries in uh, in that area. And it, it was it was great. Had a great time. Good beer. I got a lot of stickers. I posted on Instagram the other day. Got some shirts. So good stuff. Uh, shout out to those places as well. Um, I'll, I'll put a I'll put a description and I'll tag them actually in the post. Uh, if you want to check them out, anybody that's in Virginia, if I missed you and uh, and you want to hook me up with some patches, we can do the trade. Uh, DM me. Uh, I don't have my PO box set up just yet, so I'm not published publicly saying my address, but I will tell people through the DMs for a patch trade. All right. So, um, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to get off Virginia in just a second, but I want to, I'll say the, the breweries I went to, so you guys can check them out. We went to Wasserhund Brewery. Uh, we went to the Vale. We went to Benchtop, Maker's Craft Brewery. Um, we went to Elation. Uh, where else did we go? The uh, Legend Brewing Company. Oh, I'm missing a couple places. Damn. Okay, everything else is going to be in the description, but I wanted to give shout out oh, the garage. Um, that's it. But yeah, there's a bunch of other places to check out. O'Connor. I don't have all my stickers in front of me, so check them out. So that's that's the last I'm going to say. And everyone knows I'm into craft beer, so it was great. Shout out to my dude Brent. Uh, he's been hooking it up from Texas, sending me beer. He sent me one shipment. He's doing a second one. Dope, dope stuff. And uh, also got some beer hookups from Alabama over the past couple of weeks. So just great stuff, and I appreciate it. And in the past, I've had from Kentucky Sawstone Brewery send me some beer. If you run a brewery or if your family runs a brewery or something like that, you want to send me some craft beer, I will not say no. DM me at 108 underscore memes. Tell me what brewery, and uh, and we'll make it happen. I'll get you, get you a shirt or some stickers or something and a, and a shout-out on the show. All right, all that said, guys, let's talk about my guest today. My de- my guest today is Ed Gephardt. He's the chief of police from Fishers, Indiana. Now, let's talk about Fishers, Indiana. Let me tell you where it's at. Let me tell you what it's about. And then we're going to talk to Chief Ed Gephardt. Fishers, Indiana is 20.6 miles, 23 minutes driving 
from downtown Indianapolis. Okay, so it's a suburb of Indianapolis, which if you follow Hoosier 50 on Instagram, you'll you'll hear some things about uh, Indianapolis. Um, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I don't know. But anyway, um, as of the 2010 census, the population of Fishers, Indiana was 76,000 people. And by 2019, the estimated population was 95,000 people. So it's growing uh, in, in nine years. It's growing exponentially. That's crazy. Um, and to think about it, there were about 350 people that lived there in 1963, 2000 and 1980, and 7,500 that lived in 1990. So the, the city's booming. City is booming, okay? Um, the mayor, because we're going to talk about him, is Scott Fadness. He's a Republican. Uh, total land area is 38 square miles. Uh, 35 of that is land and two is water. Elevation is 18, seven, uh, 817 feet above sea level. Uh, population density is... 2,755 people per square mile. So that kind of gives you an idea. Let's talk about the Fishers Police Department in Indiana. It is a full-service police department. They've got everything that is going on, um, which Chief Gephardt is going to talk about momentarily. The police department has 111 sworn officers whose primary purpose is to serve and protect the city of, uh, this is saying 88,000 people, so I don't know when they wrote this on their website, but according to Wikipedia, the number is significantly off. Um, so they're, you know, whatever, but I mean, you know, Wikipedia might be talking about the city official, but it may not necessarily have the, um, the whole jurisdiction, or maybe the whole jurisdiction doesn't take up that whole city. I don't know. Um, like I said, they're a full service police department. They have a emergency response team, which is like a, uh, like a SWAT team light. They have uh, hostage negotiation, criminal investigations, traffic, undercover narcotics, collision reconstruction, a dare program, a dive team, bike patrol, honor guard, boat patrol, and of course a canine team. Um, so they've got a decent amount of people. The The first agency I worked for was about 250, 300 people uh, sworn, and then where I currently work is about 120. So I, I can relate. The Fishers is probably around where I... Um, where I'm familiar with, uh, as far as salary goes, cause I want to give you guys an idea of what they're working with, because after you hear chief talk, you're going to be like, I want to work for them. So they start with a step program as of 2022. So today, um, step zero entry levels, $58,155. Step one goes up to 60,249. Then we go up to 62,064 and 73,000 for step four. Um, that's their five-step pay scale, uh, reflective, and he's going to talk about at the very end when he talks about his openings. They are hiring. Um, that you know, if you're coming from a, se a separate agency or whatever, if you have experience, you're going to go up the steps. Um, you also get incentive pay for being a detective, dive, dive team member, ERT member, evidence technician, field training officer, and a paramedic. That's pretty cool. I, I feel like all cops should be paramedics at this point. I think the moment they said, the moment we start getting required to carry Narcan and deploying it on calls for service, uh, I always said, why, why, why are we not? I, my old agency wouldn't recertify me in CPR. I'm like, are you kidding me? I could literally, I've done CPR so many times and I wasn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But anyway, um, and it also, it falls um, in Hamilton County. Not that that really matters. So anyway, that's Fishers, Indiana. 
That's the Fisher's Police Department. Just to give you an idea, snapshot outside looking in. And now we're going to talk to Chief Ed Gephardt, who is amazing. Really amazing. One day I hope to go to Indiana. I got a lot of people I got to see. I got to see Dave from Unit to Back. I got to see Kenny the Red Ninja. I got to see uh, Hey My Man, Ben. Um, got to meet Hoosier Five O, Dr. Delery. All these people in the Indiana area, man. Uh, Logan Campbell. I'm trying to think of everybody from Indiana. There's just so many of them. I know I'm missing a couple and I apologize, but I'm going to do a, like an Indiana tour. I think, I think that's the plan. I'm going to do that. But anyway, I do have to actually say we have a new sponsor for the podcast itself. So I got to throw that in there. The interview portion of today's episode is brought to you by Fit Responders. Fit Responder is a first responder owned company that has the mission to make first responders the fittest they can be. They offer meal prep uh, services. They they have nutrition pra- pra- practices and packages. They have all these different things to try to make first responders fit and healthy because, you know, we've talked about this before. Um, obesity, heart disease, they kind of are a given for law enforcement. If you look at your average cop, now there there are some some Adonis looking motherfuckers out there. Um but they don't take care of each other or themselves. You know, shift work, sitting in cars and all that, uh the stress, it weighs on the body. And you know, you want to talk about all the the pains that we go through. Well, a great way to alleviate that is to take care of your body. Um working out, stretching, eating right, all those things. And I know that is hard for people to get there. There's there's a lot going on. So Fit Responders is a company, again, first responder owned and operated to help you with that. They've got an entire team that kind of helps you through it. They have plans and uh, they, they partnered up with me to get some shout outs and I wouldn't have said yes if I didn't believe in what they're doing. I worked with a nutritionist for a long time. I'm probably going to line up with that soon. Again, um, it's just, you know, Especially now going to dispatch the sedentary life, it's it's terrible. It it is. I was we were just talking on vacation. The numbers have gone too far up, and uh, while I'm okay with the dad bod, uh, it, now it's too much. Like literally, I look like my dad when he retired, who had a big belly and uh, didn't take care of himself and and paid the ultimate price for it. So go check out Fit Responder on Instagram. Check them out. They've got links in there. They're also on uh, Facebook. And they will help you out. They've got free trainings on the Facebook group. But then, of course, they sell programs to help you as well. So, again, the interview portion is brought to you by them. Go check them out. They're a great company, great people to um, to have in your corner. And I'm happy that they tried to or that, that we partnered together. All that being said, guys, it is time for the interview. Thank you so much for hanging out with me for a little bit. On the flip side, we have Chief Ed Gephardt of Fishers, Indiana. We'll check it out, and we'll see you on the other side. Too late to try to run 
All right, we are back, and joining me is Chief Ed Gephardt of Fisher's Police Department in Indiana. This is going to be a great conversation. Super looking forward to it. Now, I was about to call you sir again, and you told me not to yeah. do that. So, uh, Ed, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, just uh, Ed is fine. So. All right. Well, I, I appreciate that, and uh, again, thank you very much for for joining us. And um, I'm looking forward to tonight's conversation. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, before we get too thick in the we- in, thick in the weeds, um, let's go ahead introduce yourself. Tell everybody uh, who you are, where you're from, and you know, kind of like a snapshot resume, and we'll kind of roll from there. Yeah, sure. My name is uh, Ed Gabbard. I'm the chief of police the city of Fishers, which sits on the north suburb of Indianapolis, population 100,000, and I have 140 uh, or so employees, 123 are sworn officers, and, you know, we have a full complement agency, meaning we have detectives, SWAT, task force officers, uh, narcotics, you know, we, we have a full 360 degrees of services that we provide. And I'm originally from Los Angeles. I was born in the Los Angeles area and moved around a bit. And then uh, I was a deputy sheriff out in uh, Colorado, in uh, Durango, Colorado, for about four and a half years. And before coming out to the Midwest, and I started with Fishers in 2000. And that's kind of where I came in to to be where I am now. Okay. And in your time from starting and where you are now what kind of things did you do while you were working um i uh didn't think i'd get that question but <laughs> i uh, uh in when i was a deputy i uh, worked in the uh i got my start coming out of the jail pretty quick into patrol and then uh went into undercover narcotics work with a special investigations unit fairly early in my career and then um, moved out to Indiana and started in patrol and then worked as a you know field training officer, uh, general instructor, firearms instructor, uh, joined the SWAT team, was on SWAT for about 10 years, director of training, and started promoting. My first promotion was uh, to sergeant in 2007 and just ascended through the ranks and became, you know, served as the patrol commander then the assistant chief, and then became chief in 2018, kind of overnight. And uh, I've been at the helm, you know, last just under four years now as chief. I was trying to think of other things I've done. Sorry, I skipped skipped all that stuff. The wide variety is in between there. Sure, (laughs) sure. And that's kind of, that was kind of what I was wondering, you know, and and that's what it sounds like. It sounds like you really got the the sample platter of police work doing a little bit of everything, trying trying different things. And that's good. I think, you know, and we'll kind of go into that a little bit as we get into talking about, you know, your role as a leader and things like that. But it gives you a more well-rounded view of the job. It's kind of I've seen leadership come up that were only narcotics or only, you know, one sort of specialty. And that's fine and dandy and they're good at what they do. But when it comes to, you know, should they get kicked back to patrol or a lot of times when you get promoted, you go back to patrol, you know, you're a patrol sergeant, even though if you were a dope dog, you go back to patrol and it's kind of like a fish out of water. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I, um, I, 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 this is the part I skipped over. I did have some 
administrative roles. Um, you know, I did some uh, background investigations work and hiring recruitment there for a while and um, got some public information experience along the way and then started, you know, to move through the rank and file. I did that all kind of while I was on SWAT. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of tough sometimes with my peers because when you start moving into the admin side of the house and you're on the team, uh, you get knocked down a little bit for that and uh, kind of worked my way through that and uh, gained the respect. You know, the, I'm a patrol-minded uh, individual. I like to say tactical operational side of the house was my expertise, but I had a grip on um, admin and budgets from my stints on that side of the house as well. So, you know, I always hear the, you know, are you a book smart or are you a street smart type officer? I didn't get my college degree until um, way later. Like chief wasn't the goal for me. I didn't even think I would attain it. So I ended up going to college in my late thirties and grabbing a degree um, late because it just started to become a possibility that I could move into some upward command positions, but had to qualify for them. And, you know, so just a little bit unorthodox, but uh, even through all those ranks, you know, whether it was FTO supervisor or whether it was train director or whether it was patrol commander, AC, even the chief, I always made my way back to the roll calls and, that's where I was most comfortable and liking to go, even though as the higher you get, it's the less comfortable they are with you in the room. Sure. But it's sure. always it's always the atmosphere I enjoy the most because it's just to me it's a police policeman being real. And uh, you can kind of hear the direction of your agency if you can get down to that level of the line and they'll tell you, Hey, this is this is the direction we think we should head. So you can you can kind of guide yourself that way, hopefully, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to touch on that in just a minute. But first, I want to go on. You said that originally admin, you know, kind of the higher echelon was not your intent that you didn't see that as a possibility. What was it that kind of made you make that switch and go, you know what, maybe this is an opportunity or this is something that I would consider doing? I was in the director of training position and I had uh, in that position, you're kind of trying to get the, the departments, you know, to maneuver in a certain way. And uh, I felt crime increasing in the city of Fishers and the violence of Indy trickling over into Fishers. So um, I was really in the mood to start doing tactical operational stuff control wide and, uh, you know, breaking out. SWAT tactics to every patrolman. I was really a, had a heart for that and, and, you know, started grabbing the attention of the then chief and assistant chief at the time and had their ears a little bit on the direction I was heading in terms of um, where, I, where I thought that the agency should be. Even though at the time I was a little bit younger and kind of was like, this is where we should go. I don't know how to get us there. We need to get support. We need instructors and he'd buy in and as I was communicating it was a it was a very clear conversation it was uh it was sometime in 08 maybe 09 ish um I was in with the chief it was just me and him and he said I think you'd make a, a good commander one day and uh I was like <laughs> I didn't see that one coming and it wasn't on the radar um because uh um I just didn't feel um it was going to be possible i didn't think i had the, the education or the acumen there but uh another friend of mine a mentor of mine 
say you gotta go into and tell the assistant chief, you know, that you're interested if you're really interested. And uh, at the time, I kind of felt like uh, I, I could maybe mix it up and bring something tactical to the organization. Uh, operational response type was kind of what I was had my mindset on. And uh, the first time I told the assistant chief, he was a little bit more hard nosed than the chief at the time, and he just laughed at me. <laughs> he said, uh, "I'm not uh, next in line, and you know that you know go back to work, what have you." It wasn't very receptive, and um, that you know, pissed me off. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of went back in sometime later and said, "All right, I get it. Just tell me what the bars are. Tell me what I need to go do." Uh, so down the road, if it does come open, you know, I felt like we could make a difference um, if we approach crime fighting differently. And, uh, um, and that's from other leaders in the organization, right? Whether it be a SWAT team leader, whether it be our tactical operational leaders or CQB, I thought a lot of that stuff needed to be bled out and go, you know, wider. You know, ICS and Incident Command was laughed at back then by police, but it's not now. And I thought there'd be a place and time for it. So I went back in and he kind of set. He said, fine, and he gave me the bars, and I just went out and accomplished all the rungs. He gave me the bars for commander, the bars for AC, assistant chief, and then the bars for chief, and I just went out and did them all. Right, and that was after he basically laughed at your face and being like, no, this isn't this isn't you. Yeah, he did. So It was awesome. Well, yeah, right, and that's, that was kind of what I was thinking. You know, when you're met with that resistance, I feel like a lot of people, they kind of – that's where we go into the fight or flight kind of thing. You know, some people would just cower and be like, all right, then that's not for me. But a lot of people, and I feel like cops are more like this because of the alpha mentality that a lot of us have. You basically went back in there. and was like, no, this is, this is what I want to do. Let's let's, how do I do that? Has that always kind of been your mindset is like, you tell me no. And that means yes to me. Yeah. I've always just kind of, uh, uh, if I felt like grabbing something within the agency, I would do it. I was never scared to just do, you know, I taught dare for a while um, because I, I wanted to see if I could make an impact in schools. And, you know, I can remember buddies of mine being like, you don't want to do that. But I did that stuff uh, because I was just experimenting with who I was going to be as an officer because I was, was so young then. But, you know, especially when I decided to go and do, and the, the backgrounds and recruitment positions kind of funny story because. I was training and they put a dude in my car. I was like, where do we find this guy? Mm-hmm. So I went up and uh, I went up to the Sarge at the time and I said, where do we find that guy? And uh, he handed me a book and said, you go find him. And that's how that started. Um, and I'm like, all right, challenge accepted. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just kind of always was just trying things and trying to do things, um, not really to build a resume because I didn't really think any of it was going to lead to this. I just kind of was doing things to kind of see where I could fit in, where I could help, where I could get us better, where I thought that we could go. And at the time, some of the, some of my direction was wrong and leaders helped to, you know, carve me and navigate me. You know, I owe a lot of people uh, for my success, you know, mm-hmm. who's helped me along the way that to, to train me and teach me different things, especially about tactics and operations and so forth. But, um, some of the smartest tactical guys taught me a lot about, you know, history and leadership too. So you just got to be willing to listen and, and try to apply it somewhere. And I just right. didn't take no for an answer. I think a lot of cops don't take no for an answer, but uh, uh, I'm certainly one of those too. Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting how obviously on the road, 
we don't take no for the for an answer, right? Like we're always persistent on on investigations or, or whatever we're looking for. Um, you know, you tell us no, we're gonna find a way to finagle our way in. I'm just thinking about like drug stops or something like that. But then also what I was thinking as well is it sounds like you had the mentality. I don't know. This is kind of what the question is like, was your mentality always like, how could I make the agency better? Like since jump, was that what you were thinking? Or is that something that being a training officer kind of changed your perspective or were, how did that go? If I understand your correction, I, I understand your question correctly. I never, uh, um, I was never really worried about what everybody else was doing. I was just kind of worried about what I was doing. Um, so I couldn't, I, I didn't have, um, you know, I wasn't one to sit and, and look, I got angry at times. Right. And I, and I, and I refer to that as passion now. So when my guys are mad at me, I always go, they're not mad. They're just passionate about law enforcement. <laughs> but that helps me to, that helps me to navigate my day because I'm not perfect. Um, and nor are they, and I don't, I don't expect them to be, but for me, I was just trying to put in uh, wherever I could. And like I said, it wasn't until it literally was about 10 years from the time the chief told me you could be this before I ascended all the way to chief and had no clue that any of that was going to happen or be possible, especially coming from another agency in 2000. So from 2000 to 2018, I became the chief. And all that, again, is a lot of other people giving me a lot of great things along the way that, you know, I steal and, and still owe them for. Right. Right. And I, you know, when I think about like personal growth and personal development uh, there, it's, it's kind of weird because you, you hear a lot of talk of, all right, well, this is, this is a you thing. You need to focus on it, your own thing. But also at the same time, you, you do, you get help from all these different angles, sometimes angles that you never even expected to have them come in and they help you along the way. So there's like that dichotomy of, yes, it is a single person's mission. You're doing it. You're it's at the end of the day, it's your actions, but don't thwart off help either. And I feel like that's the the delicate balance. I think too many people hear that. Oh, it's all me. And then they don't accept any help. And then they, they don't get anywhere from it. Well, it's not. And, you know, I've never been, a, a you know, I, I've always owed those who helped me along the way and still look at some of them with fond. You know, I still have a tough time going in when I come across mentors that help me get to where I am, and now I'm over them in rank. I still feel like they outrank me. I still sit down across from them with respect and uh, give them my ear, and they give me their ear, and I learn just as much then as I do now from some of those conversations because some of them are brave enough just to tell me like it is. And I really think in terms of where we're from or who we are or who we become, if you forget who you are, that's when you're not the leader that probably people would have expected you to be, right? So what I mean by that is I think that's what gets lost in some leadership across the board is that separation of us and them. But I, I got to tell you, quite honestly, um, it, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the office because it's hard to go out every day and walk the hallways and hear things and listen to things and try to move the organization. And I see why chiefs before me that I saw spent more time in their office and I just am uh, resistant towards that path. I tell my assistant chiefs all the time. I said, I know why they did it. I know why they stayed in their office. It's just easier, but <laughs> uh, I don't think that's going to help our city, our community. I don't think that's going to help, you know, Nick and his resilience. I don't think it's going to help 
my officers and their wellness. I don't think it's going to help anybody to sit there and hide from the problems that we are facing today, especially today. Right. I think, you know, if you stay in the office and you don't really see what's going on in the squad room, you're just going to get tone deaf. And before you know it, you know, you're completely disconnected with the people behind, you know, um, underrank you. And even if you rely on sergeants or commanders or whatever to pass the message up, this is a game of telephone. You're going to miss something. You're going to, you know, things aren't going to get translated the right way. And before you know it, the agency is going one way, but the, the, the rank and file is going a completely different way. Yeah. I'm only as good as um, those that surround me. And I always tell people when I get into different decision makers, we don't make, I don't make decisions in a vacuum. Meaning I don't sit here and decide everything for this agency in a vacuum. I go out and try to pulse it. I try to learn from it. I try to hear back. And then I bring my team together and I just put it out there. This is what I heard. This is what I'm hearing. This is where we're headed. What do you guys hear? Is this the decision we should make? If it's, if it's tactical operation, that's one thing. You got to make decisions. You got to go. But if it's a, if it's a department decision, should never be in a hurry. Um, it shouldn't be in a hurry to, to, to hot stove something just because it's politics or community or something coming down. You have time to peel that onion back and take everything into consideration and, and move the agency in the direction that everybody would expect you to or respect the decision that you made. They may not agree with you, but they may respect the direction. That right. Cause they'll on. know that you took the time to actually think the, decision through before just acting right so you you mentioned earlier in the beginning about you know when you go sit in squad rooms and stuff in in the briefing room and you you go to the roll call you like doing that because you actually get to feel the pulse of the agency see where things are but you also said that that also makes the cops uncomfortable you know because and and you know when the white shirt comes in the room everybody clams up nobody wants to speak their mind you know what are they trying to see or whatever from the interactions i've had with people that work for you they seem to have gotten over that. They they see you as a true, genuine person sitting with them, you know, what what have you. How do you accomplish that? What is it that a leader can do to kind of break down those barriers? Because obviously there's a respect structure and being in a paramilitary organization, there's always going to be there. But how do you break down kind of to make it a person to person thing where they respect the chief, but they also understand that he's a cop just like me? Well, you got it. There's a lot to that. I can point to a few things that could help, but one is I don't wear a white shirt. Um, I don't wear a uniform that's different from the men and women that serve our community. And I think that is really important. Um, you'll find me generally uh, for at least no, no less than four days of the week in the uniform with the vest on and a gun belt. And I think that uh, um, that comes from years of hearing comments of, you know, the golf shirts are in or they must be headed out to the golf course because they're in their soft shirts and they're in their soft 511s. And I think if you want to be remembered as a policeman, you better dress like one at least, you know, three quarters. You know, there's times where I got to wear a suit. There's times where I got to dress down because I'm having a community and that calls for that. You don't want to dominate those. So there's a tactical reason sometimes to dress down but for the most part you'll find me in uniform with a gun on and i think that that's important i think that um, um you know i don't have a parking spot that puts me right next to a door i don't hold myself higher than them sometimes i forget where i park because i park all over the damn place and i don't know where i leave my car sometimes i drive a I drive a patrol fully marked patrol vehicle just like my patrol officers do i don't I don't, I want them to, when they see me, 
it actually is twofold because, uh, uh, you know, as a chief, you can't be rolling to the scenes anymore. They don't want you out there because they want to be like, I got this, I got this. But if I were, if I drive a mark car, I can kind of get around the scene a little bit because I want to see what's going on because I'm still a cop in mind. So they don't really catch it. They think they got it like, was that the chief? But uh, so I find it kind of sneaky that way. But I think it's important that they see that you're still and you got to the roll calls for me is you just got to keep going back and back and back and back and back. And, right. and I, and I set out on a path early that I was going to do that and I was going to try to do it in the best way possible. And right now I've switched it a little bit to dinners um, where I just bring dinner in and try to sit down with them. Um, because um, one of the main reasons I was doing the roll calls to begin with is because of the very thing you said is, are we communicating the message down of the, you know, of the chief's intent or, you know, the things that need to be going on. And uh, I find that my lieutenants and our sergeants and you know, our majors and stuff that they're doing it. And so late last year I was going around and I was doing the roll calls and uh, they were informed. They were, they, they knew all everything we were doing. There was nothing, there's no surprises out there. And, so I was beginning, I feel like I was beginning to insult them a little bit because I was continuing to come out and, you know, did you hear this? Did you hear that? Did you hear this? And I had to switch it a little bit and uh, I had to listen to them say, hey, we're doing what you ask us to do. We're communicating. So I just switch it to dinners. So I just bring in food and they sit down and uh, we try to talk about things that they want to talk about, you know, the, the latest new pieces of equipment that they think we should have or something. And those those went really, really well. It was, uh, it was, I didn't want to let go of the roll calls because I, I love them so well because it's, it's kind of a lifeblood. But uh, um, the dinners, uh, the lieutenants were right. Um, I got a lot out of just sitting down and breaking bread. And um, what was cool about the dinner setting instead of the squadron setting is, is they, you know, they start to ask you about, you know, you start talking about old calls for service and different things that have things that would never come out of that you know, direct roll call setting, like, uh, we heard this about you on this call, you know, and you can have that conversation and you're a little bit more in tune with them and the patrol and the job rather than this is me and this is you. And um, I'm here delivering a message and I don't want to insult our leadership either because it's important that they feel like they're doing their job. Right. Sure. When you go ahead and uh, do these dinners, this is while they're on duty or is it something you do often? Yeah. I'm off, but they're on. I think okay. it's important to come to them. So if they're on at night, I try to hit them at night um, on a night that's good. And so I'll come back in. And then uh, the mornings, I try to hit them right after roll call. I think it's important to try to hit them on their time. So I'll do a Saturday or Sunday morning because that's their time. That's me coming to them and not them coming to me because I don't always want people like the chief expects us to go to him. Mm -hmm. I want to find them in their environment. And I drive around. I still, I still listen to the radio and try to drive around and listen. The calls for service are massively busier than they were when I was out there um, running the districts. And so that's important for me to take into consideration, too, as I make leadership decisions about staffing and manpower, what's going on in the street. So I'm always trying to find ways to you know, get, get to them. Sure. It's one thing to do, you know, what we, what I, we used to call like radio magic. You know, you can either make yourself sound busier or sound not so busy. And it kind of comes to the point where it's like, does the chief really understand what's going on? And, you know, mm -hmm. I've had chiefs in the in the past where all they do is listen to the radio. And, you know, if, if the squad is good, you know, if the squad's squared away, 
it doesn't sound like a cluster on the radio, but you could have a true cluster in front of you, but they know how to commit to handle themselves. And then you hear the other way around where, you know, things do kind of go sideways, but if you never leave the office and drive around and see how the community, not even that, see how your, your people are interacting with the community. Because again, you could go and just talk to the community itself and get a different picture than what is really happening. And, and I've seen that too, where, you know, the chief gets, or the leadership gets so enthralled with, Hey, we got to please the community. Got to please the community guys, you know, do that. And everybody still at the station is like, okay, but what about us? Like they get, you know, kind of cast out to the side and it's, I've, you know, you just end up seeing all these different things, but it sounds like, you know, you remember where it starts and it starts at the station house. Well, I think a lot of that is, uh, um, and I haven't, you know, it's not to say I wouldn't fall into it and however long I'm in the role, but I don't evaluate my people through the community and I don't evaluate the community through my people. Um, I separate the two. So if I'm out and about and I'm communicating in public forum, which I, you know, I'm out two, three times a week at night talking to the community and uh, I don't ever ask them how my officers are doing. Sometimes they'll say, hey, I came across so-and-so and it was a great interaction. Great, fantastic. Sometimes you'll say, I came across so-and-so and it wasn't great. It wasn't fantastic. I'm sorry, I'm sorry our, I'm sorry, our professionalism, our service didn't you know, meet your standards and try to let them know there's a system to talk with their supervisor and then guide them back into the leadership because um, no one wants the chief coming to say, you know, so-and-so chief found out from a community member. Every time you hear that, every time I hear that, I hear it you know, often my rule of thumb is always, I don't cast a judgment until I've heard from the officer side, you know, our side has to speak to the community can come in and complain and, and they're welcome to, and I want them to, but also we will always listen to our officer as well to tell how their interaction went from their perspective. And, uh, you know, when we implemented uh, body cameras in uh, 20, I think it was 20, 2019, it was before the disaster. You know, that hit, you know, the pandemic and so forth and uh, protests and so forth before all that took place. And, you know, I was asked, you know, are you putting body cameras on your officers so you can see what they're doing? And I said, no, we're putting, I said this to the news. I said, we're putting cameras on officers. I can prove you they've always been doing it right. Cameras um, have just shown us, or at least for me and my, in my agency that we've been doing it right and they continue to do it right. Again, I'll emphasize we are not perfect, but this is not a perfect sport that we're playing either. Um, our responses and our things are serious, and sometimes you lose senses, and sometimes you get emotional because of what's in front of you, and you have to take all that into consideration when you have the community coming out to say, I had this interaction with so-and-so. Yeah, I've lost myself in that. But, no, uh, no, no, I, I appreciate that, it. I think... It. No, I, you know, it's funny. Last week I had a conversation with a, a retired police officer from South Carolina and he basically, we kind of came up with this, this conversation about perfectionism too. Uh, per- perfectionism, excuse me. And, you know, I brought up a sports metaphor, you know, you talk about someone like LeBron James or, you know, baseball, Pete Rose, or whatever, like these people get paid millions of dollars to fail majority of the time right like you know a baseball player probably misses 70 percent of the time so on and so forth but you, now you have law enforcement who's expected to be perfect every single time not getting paid that not getting any kind of notoriety like that whatever and it, it's unfortunate that we don't get any bit of break right like if we 
any anything we do doesn't matter any interaction doesn't even have to be a deadly force situation just a very minor interaction has to be perfect no matter what and i really appreciate what you're saying where you don't expect that that 1000 batting average you you understand that emotions play into it whatever else plays into it and that's a major major key that i you know i hope people listening to take into account as well well at the core of um just being a human being then i would have to be perfect and i'm not so why would i expect anybody to be perfect around me i just don't see it that way um i you know i've messed up we can sit and talk about how I do a lot of good things, but we can also talk about how I've come up short on a lot of other things. And I'm sure the list, you know, could tilt one. <laughs> Look, man, fail, fail hard, get back up, get it right. And, you know, the other thing too is I want my team, I want my team to be operating without hesitation. So I don't want them always thinking of the swift hand of justice internally because I want them out there knowing that we support them first. Because that leads to um, them playing, and I think the term, I think you'll get it being, a, being an officer, but th- that means they're playing ball loose. And if you play loose, you're, not, you're, not, you're less likely to, to react in a different way than you would if you're just always worried about mm-hmm. swift hand of the administration coming down and swatting you or the hot stove effect or whatever you want to call it. My mayor doesn't expect perfection out of me. And so that helps to set that tone all the way down. So, um, you know, fail hard, get back up, give it, give it another run, you know, short of committing crimes, you know, officers are going to mess up. That's, that's, that needs to be expected in, in our communities. Sure. And I think that all kind of boils down to the communication from the police department to the community. Like, you know, I think, you know, someone coming out and saying like, Oh, well, this will not be tolerated when it's not, like you said, it's not a crime. You know, if it's, if it's a mistake or whatever, and it's not thoroughly investigated, I just, it it frustrates me. And I've seen exactly what you're talking about when you're always concerned that, Oh, I could lose my job over screwing this up. Then you screw up or, or something worse happens, you know, and you get hurt or something because you hesitate it Um, to know that your administration or just even your direct line supervisor will have your back if things go sideways pays dividends to to immediate job performance and it, it lends to them being more social them being more open because um, they're not playing the game tight in my view they're they're um, communicating they're being effective and, and the supervisors too you know i got there's a rule i've used that i say we it's called 80 20 on the tactical operational ground, if we're in in response and we're setting a perimeter up, you're only going to get 80%. So another Sarge or another Lieutenant needs to come in and fill that 20 in. Together we can bat a hundred, but no one's going to bat a hundred in a tactical operational mindset. So I don't expect it, but I do expect that set. I do expect that second or third, you know, leader to come in and bail that first leader out because it could be 60, 40, it could be 50, 50, depending on, the experience of the two, if one's more of a newer officer and one's more of a, of a, of a veteran leader, you know, you have expectations that might be different, but um, no one's going to bat a hundred percent. Not mm-hmm. me, not them, not you and the community <laughs> equally, nor is the community um, because they're having 
you know, our jobs are negative. We have negative contacts, traffic stops. We go to domestic violence. We go to, you know, we are generally sought after in a negative light. And so we're going to a home that's at their worst as well. And so you have to always remember that as well, that what's going on with them, that they're acting this way towards us. And so I've always felt like if we could have one, uh, either them or us, if someone could stay calm, then we won't have that, you know, they won't have that catastrophe that I'm trying, that, that I would like our office to avoid that maybe, sure. you know, you said it before we got on, that could be an event that changes three or four careers for a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're, you're spot on. I think that we have obviously, and, and I, I just want to kind of encapsulate this whole part of the conversation saying like, we're not saying, Hey, mess up on purpose and you'll be fine. You know, we, we obviously, we expect the utmost professionalism and, and doing the job right and everything. I think it's just, it's, it's the, I like the tight loose metaphor you're saying. Like if you know that you don't have to look over your shoulder every single time you step out of your car, that really, it just opens the door to so much more looseness and openness. And, you know, I, I feel like if you have that confidence and confidence goes for everything, every aspect of the job, you just perform so much better to the point of like, if you're confident in your physical abilities, you know that you can talk to people confidently because should things go sideways, you can handle yourself. Same thing with shooting and driving and blah, 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 blah. It just, it kind of all, and this, again, we talked about this last week was just, it all kind of just molds together into this big thing. And I think that's what makes you a more proficient law enforcement officer at the end of the day. Well, and, and you'll see, you can hear, you know, you've been on, you know, they're hard on themselves. Mm-hmm. Like they, you know, officers need to get it right. Um, and they have to get it right with their peers or that culture, or no one wants to mess up the open and clear. No one wants to mess up the, the, the tactical side of an injury. No one wants to mess up in a physical confrontation because we're our own worst, you know, the roll call setting and the officers <laughs> in the squad room will eat you alive. Oh yeah. So they're out there, they're out there trying to get it done as best they can, just just for their just for their environment at that level. And I've seen more body camera footage of being massively hard on themselves before I could ever get them in my office and do anything to them. They, I mean, cops generally want to get it right. And sure. I believe that you just have to, I, I don't, I'm not trying to give everybody advice I and mean, it would be different from different areas of different agencies, but you have to just believe in that. And that sets the tone for the kind of leader that I am, that they sure. want to get it right. I just need to provide the tools and the confidence and the support in different realms to help them be okay if they don't get it right. Right. I, I, I agree completely. Now, like we were saying um, in the beginning, before we press record, the way I found you was through the resiliency project, obviously a big movement um, for mental health and resiliency and, and things like that. How is, well, first off um, post George Floyd, right? The, the new, the new normal that we're in, how has your department's morale and community interaction been over the past two years? It's actually two day, two years to the day that we're recording this. Um, how has your, how have things been as far as that's concerned? Um, you know, we had our moments, um, we had our moments through all of that and no one had a book on the shelf that said, you know, how do I get through a pandemic? And how do I get through, um, the Floyd era, but you know, we were working on community relationships long before Floyd happened. 
you know, we were working on body cams and de-escalation and crisis intervention training long before those incidents took place in Minneapolis. Um, the things that got to our officers the most was a lot of leaders and politicians folding on support of law enforcement. And they took that hard because the, jobs, the job is hard. Uh, make a decision within a split minute that could ultimately end someone or your life and do that time and time again. It takes a toll. So they were, they were tight. You know, guys were starting to play tight as, as we get into that conversation. And I knew it. <clears throat> I could sense it from the roll calls. And I was hearing about it from leaders. You know, you just start hitting roll calls and trying to support them and calm them down and bring everything into percent, for, uh, you know, bring everything back into reality. And so <clears throat> we did a number of things. One is, uh, you know, I went around and took questions on their most, uh, their worries. And the biggest worry was the attack on qualified immunity. And that was a problem for them. So, you know, I brought the mayor over and uh, he did different uh, meetings with the entire department about uh, his support of them and the fact that uh, uh, what qualified immunity meant to him and how we would combat that together as a team and what things he was doing and what things I was doing. And he just assured them, if, if the chief feels like you had good intent and operated sound, and you know, I'm not going to let him ruin you. And that message went really well. And uh, we we worked together to align politics with law enforcement to try to get guys to un- guys and gals to understand that uh, nothing was going to change in the way we did business at the Fisher's Police Department. But also, I didn't uh, you know I didn't run out and you know take a knee and I didn't run out and do all the things that I was seeing, you know, leaders do. I, I just, you have to think about what your officers want to see you do. And I don't think they wanted me to get involved in a lot of that type of stuff. And I had a lot of meetings with a lot of different cultural diversities through our community. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, you said it earlier, there was a lot of, I want you to come out and say, you don't believe in this or you'll never do this. And I said, I can't, I can't say anything because I can't promise you we won't. Um, because I've been to calls for service where I've lost my sense of awareness and my thought process because I felt like I may lose my life. And I know what that feels like. And I wasn't going to put them in position to have to feel like they had to be perfect. So I just avoided a lot of that. Um, and really, quite honestly, I was very honest about that with the, the different uh, stakeholders, religious stakeholders and diversity in my community about how I felt about that. And they, they understood. So not only do I have to, you know, be there for the community and all how they feel. And I understood that. I broke down policies. We made a transparency page. We did everything we could to put out there that, you know, we, we do de-escalate. Those things are important to us. And man, if, if the communities knew how much law enforcement actually trains to de-escalate, it's almost every time we train. Mm-hmm. Stop. Please. You know, I mean, we de-escalate on everything. All we, all we needed to do was log it, you know, put it down on every training that you do. And, uh, um, once we got to the other side of that and the officers and our, we met a few times and they saw that we were there for them and things started to just calm down and uh, we weren't operating like a lot of other agencies might've been that they were peering into or watching, you know, we just didn't let that happen in our house. And uh, I'm proud of that because <laughs> I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to do the, I was just trying to do the best I could with one of the hardest situations in law enforcement history and, and uh, any leader that was on point 
down during that whole time. Um, didn't sleep a lot. You know, it was, it was, those were trying, trying days and times. And it was hard for law enforcement. It was hard for my officers because, you know, they're getting attacked and there's reform, 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 and they're hard on themselves. And they, you know, they want to, they want a community, uh, you know, they didn't feel the community uh, was there for them for a short period of time. But as things picked up and got, com- got coming back on, it was tough because you, in, in the worst time ever, um, in the worst time ever that that could have happened, we're in the midst of that pandemic. So, you know, all the citizens academies, all the tours, all the ride alongs, all the community events, all the meetings, all the HOAs, everything you go to to explain what you're doing, they were off. They weren't doing any of that. So at the time where we needed to be out the most because the community need reassurance on the partnership that we had with them, we were sucked into this bubble of COVID. And so everybody was like, I, I don't, I can't go outside. I can't, you know, I can't get out of my car. I can't do this, you know? So it was a really hard, weird time for the police across the nation, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, I mean, the, the word unprecedented almost doesn't even mean anything anymore because it's been said so much, sure. but they, they were. Um, but it sounds like as you engage the community, but you were also upfront with your officers and everything like that. What it sounds like is that the confidence that your officers had to do their job and do their job safely. And, and knowing everything that we said in the previous conversation was like reignited. Everything just kind of picked back up. And, and is that, would that be a fair assessment that, morale at your agency is, is yeah, pretty on the uptick. It was funny. This is a true, this is true. Everything I say is true, but this is true. I, uh, you know, we didn't know what we had. Right. So everybody's like decentralized. And so, you know, March 6th was the first positive case of COVID when we thought that we didn't know what it was and we didn't know what it was going to be. And so the following Monday, you know, all weekend I knew that it, we, it was, it had hit fishers. I knew. And so Monday, I had a meeting first thing with the mayor and, and our executive staff. And it was like, we're decentralizing, send them all home. And I did. We sent everybody home because we just didn't know, except for a skeleton patrol that guaranteed the community what we owe them, which is the staffing numbers that are set by federal formula. So those guys were out. And then we just, everybody else was home. And so I waited two weeks and I called everybody in my department, everyone, every civilian, every officer. And I just checked on them. How you doing? How's it going? How's it going? How you doing? All the way down the line. Took three days, by the way. And uh, um, the first round of calls, uh, we think you jumped the gun, Skipper. We think this is not necessary. We, you know, hey, we shouldn't, we should be at work. I mean, I have one of the best teams ever, though. We should be in the hallways. We should be at work. You know, it's, it's, been, two, it's been two weeks. It's been two weeks. And I said, okay, okay. I, all right, all right, all right. Um, and I, I went in every day. The lights were on every day. I was in there alone. Uh, my, and then our, my, my team, my command team would rotate. because so I said, there'll be someone in the building at all times. I'm not turning the lights out. Um, even though we're decentralized and there's no one there, we're still going to man the ship. And uh, um, because the officers have to be out, so I felt like we should be out. But uh, um, I waited two weeks. And then I called again. And it was, you know, so-and-so's positive, so-and-so's positive best call, we could call, keep us safe, you know, okay, you know, we get it, we understand, maybe you're not as crazy as we thought you were the first time <laughs> through, and uh, uh, okay, so we, all right, so we keep rolling, and then 
two weeks go by and more positives were hitting at that point and it was you know definitely we were in it and this is the third round i kid you not let's go back to work let's go back to work let's go back to work but it's getting it we don't care we'll figure it out we'll do this we'll do x we'll do this i had guys rolling traffic stops and they were dropping driver's license into ziploc sandwich bags (laughs) I, i have the best team you know that you know, makes me, it's all, you should probably interview all of them. But anyway, they, they all wanted to go back to all the way down the line. Maybe had three that were like, you know, worried, but, for, and I just left as an option. Hey, we want to get everybody back in. We're going to rotate. We're going to get moving. And it's really important because they were right. Um, we had immediately after returning, we had a murder suicide immediately that we would have been rusty for like it, it required you know forensics teams detectives it required the full complement which would have been chaos pulling them all out of their houses and you you know as you get as an officer you know you got the haze you got the you got mm-hmm. they've been off for a month and a half so you got to dust it off right and then right after that not even probably three or four days and it's all blending together but we had uh, seven pinned down by gunfire on another uh, murder suicide and uh, they were pinned down for quite some time and you know we had SWAT and everything out and, and that would have been I don't know what happened if they didn't if they weren't clicked on and back to work and feeling like they wanted to be the police and so I really think that they made the they made the call when it was time to come back to work and I think they made the right call um, and I think for those into those two incidents that happened back to back they were a little bit more prepared for it because they were clicked on. Mm-hmm. as opposed to just being rushed out of their houses and rusty and who knows what yeah. they would have been yeah yeah you know how it is you have your radio it's half it's half charged you know you, you know you, you you tuck the gun in your gun belt you don't have the belt on you know you don't have the things you need you're just running out the door because it's tactical operational and uh you know you got guns in back pockets and they're heading in and they get there and they dress up as best they can they wouldn't have been I just say that because I've been called out a lot and that's how I roll. So I, I figure that's how they roll too. And sure. You don't have everything you need to do the job sometimes when you're leaving at 1 a.m. in the middle of the night and you're just trying to get down to the scene because you don't want to miss out and you don't want to miss something that they're going to experience without you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's a great lead from the front kind of mentality that you want to be there in that, in that moment. And that's, that's great. What, what do you do? So obviously, you know, morale, obviously at, at your agency sounds like it, it's pretty good. It's been managed very well. The big thing that I talk about and I focus on a lot, we talked about it before pressing record, mental health. That's a big deal. Um, I think it's a conversation that's getting more and more vocalized in our profession. Uh, too long, it hasn't been. So what, you know, it seems from what I've seen that your agency is very open about it you know you you help out your guys all that stuff so what what kind of practices do you implement what you know what is that like for you guys yeah so we have a have a triangle there internal health it's uh it's comprised of uh, spiritual health we have a a robust captaincy program that is really there for our guys and some of our officers prefer the spiritual route we have a physical wellness uh, goals we uh, really take care of our people. We have a, a wellness room within our agency that's built out to help our guys. It's a wellness room that encompasses both physical and mental health. And then we have the last part of the training, which is mental health. And I don't, I don't really care 
how you're injured. It could be mentally or it could be in the knee. Both of them to me is just an injury and it needs a prognosis diagnosis, meaning, you know, how are you going to get better? I've not seen a, too many mental injuries on the newer officers that you couldn't intersect the trauma and kind of make a difference and try to get them back in the game a little bit. But it's those, it's, it's, it's my generation. It's the 25 to 30 year guys that packed it away and put their boots on and, you know, did whatever they had to do to survive. And it wasn't okay to not be okay in, in my years, but um, we flipped that. In 2013, we didn't have a lot of guys reporting uh, physical injuries for one reason or the other, on trust of admin at the time, whatever it was, I, I'm not. But we had to really start to work to get our people to trust us just to report physical injuries because if you don't document them, I can't take care of you. I can't retire you outright if something if we don't document and get you right and you don't trust us and we don't trust you, then when it comes to disability time or pension time, you're not going to be able to feed your kids. And so we, we really drilled down on that. We really gained a lot of trust in the physical side first um, because people still, during those years, mental health was, you know, they're fine, they're tough, get back to work, um, but they're not. And, and we still aren't. But uh, um, we started really, really, when I became uh, chief, me and my uh, command staff really wanted to start working on mental health because we didn't really have any at the time. So we just kind of failed and then won and then failed and then won. And then we figured out a recipe and, and some of that trust from the physical side bled over to the mental side. And then we had a couple of PTSIs. I call them injuries, not disorders, because the disorder is uh, the administration. If you don't believe that what we ask our people to do doesn't hurt them that's the disorder it's not the injury itself so i've got some guys with uh you know ptsi over the years that just packed it away and, and we helped them get to them where they needed and that gained trust and credibility and then more officers began to trust we added a therapist that you can anonymously call um you don't have to you don't have to cross paths with the staff you just go see her i get a number and a bill and i just pay it um our workers' comp was inadequate. Um, I think workers' comp across the U.S. needs a complete overhaul. I don't think they know how to treat traumatic injuries at all. So, you know, my mayor and I witnessed that. And so we just decided we, we don't want them seeing our, uh, our mental health and our mentally injured officers. We want them seeing our physical. They're very good with the physical, but not on the traumatic side. So we just go it alone. We support our people. We pay for therapy. I got a couple different psychologists that could diagnose and, and get them on a treatment plan. And then with our therapist, Julie, have a very um, robust uh, health room that allows our officers. It's built by, by a company called Protein. Um, and they came in and put a room together that will treat um, both physical and mental health. And they support both those networks. And the officers don't have to cross admin. They don't have to come in through the front door. They can sneak in through the roll call and no one sees them. And if they go in that room, no one knows if they're broke mentally or broke physically. And I really don't care which it is. I just want them to get the help that they need. And we are seeing some good success up front in terms of some of our, our, our more youthful officers who um, I think we built the trust that they come in and they get help when they need it either anonymously or they let us know. I've had some let us know. Um, I need to go get some help and I'm good with that. We'll, we'll do that. And I think the more you help, the more they talk, 
the more you're there for them, the more they communicate and then the more trust is built. But mm-hmm. it's so difficult because, you know, it, it, you, you said it, it's a I mean, you said it was tough. You said it was tough for you when you made some of the decisions you had to make. They think that they're going to have to lose their guns or their job or their pension, you know, if they admit that they're not well or they can't handle this profession. Um, and that's, a, that's, that's tragic because, uh, um, we can diagnose, we can treat, and we can get people better if we can intersect that trauma, you know, as quickly as possible or get them to the resources that can do it. So through the, the resilience who's helped our officers or West Coast Trauma who's helped our officers or, you know, Chateau in Utah has helped our officers. Um, all these, you know, Florida House is another one. Uh, all these places are there. You just have to be able to access them and you can't be scared to admit that your officers are not going to be okay. Mm-hmm. This job doesn't lean to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you, it sounds like you're really approaching it from all different angles. And I've seen too many times where it's just swept under the rug. You know, it's just not talked about. And it, I think it's being talked about a lot more almost out of necessity because, you know, the, the suicide rates and things like that are just astronomical. Um, I've had, I had a gentleman on, <clears throat> he's a corporal at another agency in Indiana who runs their uh, health and wellness unit. And basically he had, he found the statistic that uh, for every officer that gets killed in the line of duty by car accident, gunshot, whatever, four officers take their lives. Like th- that, that, that ratio is just not, that's not good. That is not good. And it's getting worse too. He showed me an update where it's getting worse. So I, I appreciate what you're doing for that. So I, I want to ask about your wellness room, this protein wellness room. What is that? What is, what does that uh, encompass? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a company that I partner with here locally that, um, um, and they're actually going national with their business, but they, uh, they bring sports, medicine or sports approach to our um you know our 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 officers so they know they have all the top gear that athletes have they have all the techniques and therapists physical therapists that athletes have so if i get a knee bump or if i get an elbow or it's muscle skeletal they'll get the officer back in the game and i think it's contrary to the popular belief of oh my officers just taking extra time off. That's bullshit. They want to get back to work just like everybody else. Um, and so I've seen the return on that investment is, you know, I've seen officers back as early as five weeks before um, they're supposed to be back because of the sports medicine approach. And it's not just uh, um, sports, ther- you know, physical uh, approach, but it's not just, uh, it's not just on the hurt side. They come in and do a lot of uh, things to be proactive. You know, they have compression pants for workouts and, the ready ice to ice the guys down so that you know they can recover fast after workouts where we have dt training defensive tactics and they can treat and have a therapist in house that sees them and talks to them um she rotates in and out of the pd when needed and uh they also bring a mental health side to the game now where they have a complement of uh, people they can tap into to mentally help and they uh, on in, in my world their workers compensation identified which means um, they are my in the line of duty provider. Mm-hmm. So if there's a chief out there, there's a boss out there, there's someone in the command staff out there that wants to make a difference. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that do this. You just have to find them. And, and protein is the one I was lucky enough to partner with. 
and they came in and set up a room. It's uh, on my, I'll send you a picture um, after the, after this podcast of the room, it's got, you know, like if you walk into an athlete, it has the athlete benches where they treat the officers and the game ready ice and it has all the stuff. And then off into the separate room beyond that room is my mental health room where officers can go in, dial up Julie, who's our therapist, and we can do teletherapy, call her, or just take a time out, you know, because that squad room environment can be tough. Just go in there and take a moment. Mm. There's a desk set up in there to do reports. If you need that moment of silence, you can get some stuff done. Because I've seen them out in the cars and they're in the garage doing teletherapy. I'm like, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, they need to be able to go in and find somewhere private so they can, you know, work on themselves and get better. And like I said, I don't even know when they call her, um, they just anonymously do it. I just get a bill. And, uh, you know, it's funny. The mayor asked me, uh, you know, how are you going to pay for all this? I'm like, funny, you should ask. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, to get an officer treatment, literally. So this is the big, this was my hurdle. I don't know if this is any other chief's hurdle. This is my hurdle. I was like, man, what does that look like if we do all this stuff? You know, what does it look like cost wise? And, uh, um, it's not that much. It's $125 a session. And, and uh, she has picked more up and put them back into this, into our environment as professionals than, than not. And uh, it doesn't, it hasn't affected my budget. And I just told my mayor, I said, I'll buy one less AR-15. I'll buy one less challenge point. And I get my, you know, officer's therapy over some of the other stuff we're doing because I value it almost higher than any other piece of equipment I can personally buy them because it is the one thing that's going to keep them in a long professional career is keeping their mindset right. So we, we kicked off all of this through a wellness committee. And the wellness committee was a, it's a large group of our officers that came together to speak on behalf of our team to kind of say, this is kind of what we need or what we're feeling. And then you know, that also grew our crisis intervention training, our crisis uh, intervention stress management team that grew our peer to peer, which only helped us to get better with communicating and talking to one another and growing that trust internally in the agency. So if there's anybody out there that's saying, Man, I want to do some of this, start with a wellness team and just listen to what they got to say to you, because they'll tell you, they'll tell you what they need. You just got to be willing to go get it. Right. Absolutely. This is, just that last little bit really resonated home with me as I'm, like I said, mental health is a big deal. Even in my day job, uh, trying to do mental health with with my agency, that's stuff that I'm going to take back to them. Uh, one last topic I want to talk about, and we can just touch on it real quick, is it, as as you've been talking this whole time, you keep talking about like, oh, you went back to your mayor, you bounced this idea off of him. You brought the mayor into the to the roll calls which to me is almost unprecedented. Um, how is that, you know, it sounds like you have a very good working relationship with the mayor um, as opposed to the adversarial, which I, I see a lot, especially with police departments. I think that's kind of the, um, the anomaly between speaking with you and some of the other leaders is that usually they're sheriffs, they're elected. So it's a little bit easier for them to do what they want, but you as a police chief, um, how has that relationship been? Has it always been kind of back and forth or how has that been? And, you know, how has that paid off to, to your officers? Well, look, I, my job, my function is to provide the tools and resources. My people need to be successful. That's my job. 
and 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 I have the conduit to the city to do that. And so I believe that it is on me to make sure I facilitate that relationship in such a way that we can get the things we need. And sometimes I lose a lot and sometimes I gain more. It just depends. Um, and so I, I work on that. I don't, uh, um, I didn't think that was ever going to be my job, but taking the oath when I swore in with him, I knew that in order to be successful, I had to have him support law enforcement. And I talked to him um, quite often. You know, I let him know of our wins. I let him know what we're doing. Um, he's aggressive along with me, which I appreciate. So I'm gonna, I, I believe, I believe, I don't know what the guys would say, but I, or the guys and gals, but I believe I'm an aggressive law enforcement leader. I, mean, I like to get after the guns and the bad people, but uh, um, it's our job to make sure that we secure those relationships. But also, it's also our job to educate them that we still have to be looked at as a police officer and do things that um, bring us close to the line. Because if you can be a leader, but if they won't follow you, then you're not a leader. You're just someone that's there. Um, so you still have to, you have, there's, a, there's a balance. And, and I talk about, I'm really open about what that balance looks like. You know, I got to be this way for them and I got to be this way for you. And I got to make sure somewhere in the middle, we're getting all the job done. I have to, you know, I got to make sure the community's needs are met for him. I got to deliver that message in a way that my officers want to hear it. And it's generally not, look, we talk more about him tonight because you're asking me, I don't go around talking about him all day long because they don't want to hear about him because they only see me and, and that's it. And, but I know in order to get, you know, the, the, the Molly vests that they need or, you know, the uniforms that they require, or, you know, we're switching over to nine millimeters or you know, the gear that they need to do the job ultimately comes from that body of work. And, and I know I see relationships um, out there. I see what you're saying. And, and I don't, I don't know if I should, I don't know if I'm just lucky to have this or am I working just as hard as the mayor is at working to understand the profession much like everybody else. I, I kind of think it's the louder of the two. I don't, I don't know that I think mayors get into it um, wanting to support you know, public safety is the most expensive side of the, of the budget of any city. And so I think that you have to make those connections and work really hard to, and it's not all roses. It's not all roses, but uh, that's part of the gig. And uh, um, just, I just try to work on it every day and try to strengthen it every chance I get and try to put wins across the table for the community. And he seems to like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it sounds like you're you're hitting the wins every single time. And obviously, like you said, you can't win all the time, but it seems like uh, a bunch of these different columns, definitely a bunch of these different checkboxes we've talked about tonight, a uh, lot of wins and uh, and I appreciate what you do for your community and hopefully my listenership can take that back to their communities and implement it. You know, I, I've talked to people uh, up and down the rank and file from people who were, you know, chiefs under chiefs and down. So hopefully there's something I, I took a lot from it. So I'm sure my listenership has as well. So uh, before we uh, transition out of here, I, I want to thank you for your time. This has been okay. amazing. I think uh I've I've learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone else has as well. Uh, hey, I thank uh, you, and I, I want to make sure I, I thank Nick and the resiliency for what the work that he's doing. And uh, my 
you know, what you see is what you get. So, you know, put my, put my phone number out there, put my email out there. If anybody out there, you know, wants to get a hold of me, uh, if any officers are looking for a really good department to work for, they can get a hold of me. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Uh, and I was going to ask, all, I was going to ask if you guys were hiring and, and we're like everybody else. Uh, we're, we're looking for the, we're looking for good people to come to work for us. We're about a 60, 40 split right now uh, with everything that's happened to the pandemic. I think we were a 50, 50 lateral uh, new officer agency. I think we're a little bit tilted now because uh, with the academies, the way they've been kind of getting back online, we've had to just go more lateral than not. So, um, um, we are looking for good officers and uh, yeah, look us up, please. All right. Chief Ed Gephardt, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate you, sir. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye. All right. Everyone listen, stay tuned. I'll be right back. guys we're back and uh again chief ed gephardt absolutely amazing i mean i i can't say anything more than that um uh, about a month or two ago we had on the leadership council with um we didn't have any chiefs we had uh michelle from florida we had george uh kevin lamont and tom who are uh, some of the best leaders that I've come across. Earlier in the show, we've had Mike Chitwood from Volusia County. We've had uh, Grady Judd, obviously, from Polk County, both in Florida. Amazing leaders, right? And and I've had Tom Rizzo on by himself. We've talked about, you know, that a leader does not have to be someone with stars on their collar. It can be someone who is, you know, an officer right next to you. That's fine and dandy, and I agree. Uh, In the theoretical sense of leadership, absolutely. But when you are the top guy, when you're the one sitting in the big chair, uh, you obviously have a bigger sphere of influence. That's that's natural. Uh, Just like if you're ever, you know, the leader of any other kind of organization, or you know, if you get elected mayor or president, you know, your sphere of influence obviously obviously at that point is gigantic. so while, yes, you can be a functional leader and be on the line level, um, it's different when you when you go up so high. And when, when people's lives are literally in your hands, when we're talking about police chiefs and, and sheriffs. Now, here's the thing, and I mentioned about it, about it before, but sheriffs sometimes get more of a pass. Sheriffs are elected. Okay, so the general populace decides who is the person that is going to be in the big chair. Which kind of and and you know, aside from something horrific that would that would bring on a recount or a vote of no confidence, um, you're pretty much gonna get that guy or girl 
um, their entire term, whatever that may be. Police chiefs, on the other hand, are not that way. They are appointed by the mayor, by city council, something to that effect. Uh, sometimes you do get mayors that are elected, but generally speaking. And what you get, and what I've noticed, and, and I'm speaking all this from my observations, <clears throat> is that you get these police chiefs who kind of, well, first off, they're going to get selected because they're in line with what the mayor is thinking anyway. Um, but even more so when shit hits the fan, like it did during, you know, from, uh, coronavirus and onward, um, they kind of bend to the will of the chief of, uh, of the mayor, you know, and I, I, like I said, you, you start putting people's lives, your subordinate officers in danger when you do that, when you don't put their safety first above all else. The job of a police chief is not to appease the mayor. It's not. It's just not. Okay? The job of a police chief is to, first and foremost, put forth a legal and an ethical police department. Okay? But here's the thing. I think I think the narrative is so skewed where we just assume that police officers are bad people. They're going to screw up. And that's not the case. I've had this argument far too many times that there are millions of calls for services, or sorry, millions of calls for service going on right now, flawlessly, legally, ethically, and morally correct. Okay? That is the nature of the, be of the beast. Okay? Just like the chief said in the interview, you know, sometimes things get heated out there. And you may fly off at the mouth. You may, you know, a fight is not pretty. You know, so if you have to go hands-on with somebody, you need to tase them. You need to do any kind of use of force. Uh, it's not going to look great, okay? But sometimes business has to get done. As long as it's not excessive, business has to get done, right? Um, think about this, right? We've all been taught de-escalation, I mean, it's been it's been drilled into our head from basically the Ferguson situation to now, and it's just been worse—not worse, but more, more and more um, controlling and more prevalent. At what point does it become not the police officer's job to de-escalate any further? When have we? When do we get to say, "All right, this is obviously not working. It's time to go some other way." To the point where, yeah, we may have to re-escalate the situation. Because if we've never brought it down, if the cops are going down, if the cops are backing out of a situation, going, sir, 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 please, please stop resisting, stop resisting. But the guy is still moving forward? Well, then that's retreat. That's cowardice. Stand your ground, go forward, and handle business. Now, the problem is, too many police chiefs go, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to worry about the optics. We got to worry about what we what we're going to say to the community. This doesn't look good. What are you doing? You're making you're making me have to work. You're making me have to you know use my mouth for something other than kissing ass. That's not good. I can't I can't talk us out of the situation that you did legally. Bad on the officer. What what, what are you doing to me here? Now you're going to get strong chiefs like Ed Gephardt 
And they're going to go, no. They're, they're going to say, forget that. And they're going to stand with their officers. You're going to get chiefs like down in Huntsville, Alabama, where he said, no, Ben Darby did the right job. He did this job right. You're wrong, Mr. District Attorney. So we, we need to really examine this. Uh, one of the things that I really liked and I took away from Chief Gephard was, listen, I don't view my officers by what the community says. And I don't view the community by what my officer says. I'm a human being. I can go out and I can see what my officers do. I can read their reports. I can review body camera. And I can go out there and I can see how the community is acting as well. I can draw my own conclusions. So when a complaint comes across my desk and says that an officer used excessive force or they were socially or racially uh, insensitive, I can look at that at face value. I can't just say that, oh, well, you know, this is what the optics look like and I'm going to judge accordingly. No. I'm going to take the situation for what it is individually and, and say, well, these are the facts. We operate in facts here, folks. When, uh, when, if you're not a cop, you may not understand this, but we operate in facts. We go out to a scene, we interview people, we get the facts, we make a decision. Sometimes we, we get the decision wrong. Uh, most of the time we don't. Uh, a lot of times the facts don't matter when we're talking about legal proceedings, especially nowadays you got uh, very violent and dangerous people being released because our justice system is a joke, which I've been saying for months and years, but we're seeing it all too often. <clears throat> so we're seeing all these things and listen, you can't, I said this, uh, I can't remember when I, when I played the video, but it's a, uh, Ryan holiday quote. And he says, uh, you control how you play. You can't change any of these outside factors, but you control how you play. And that's all fine and dandy. The cops, um, can control how they play. Um, but the politicians and the, the legislature and the, the prosecutors are going to do what they're going to do. That's frustrating. That's one of the reasons why I I said, nah, I'm 86 and I'm out. But Chiefs and other leaders that are listening, you control how you play. You don't have to cave to the community because the optics look bad. You don't have to bend over backwards to appease the chief, or I'm sorry, the the mayor, because it's not in line with his political promises. You can take everything... For the way it is. Now, if you're a coward, and there are many of them, the moment they get those stars on their collars, they become cowards. Or maybe they were cowards the whole time. I think that's more probable. You can you can view a situation for what it is. And that's what I respect the chief for. And I'm sure there are many leaders out there that do the exact same thing. But for the ones that don't, for the ones that put officers in danger... Shame on you. You are cowards. You are weak. You need to step down. And that concludes today's episode, folks. I know I kind of went off on a rant. Um, Weak chiefs are something that 
they they hold a special place in my heart. One day, maybe we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more in depth. But for now, that concludes today's episode. Once again, thank you for Chief Ed Gephardt for taking the time out of his day and talking to me, talking to you guys. I think he, uh, he I think he did a great job. And here's the thing, right? Uh, one last thing, I guess I want to say. We're always going to have critics. Everybody's going to have a problem. Someone's going to get pissed off. Someone's not going to like the way a leader gets the job done. When I had Grady Judd on, I had a couple of his deputies. They didn't have great things to say. When I had Mike Chitwood on earlier in the year, same thing. I had some deputies say, hey, he's not one way or another. And I know that there's people that probably feel the same way about Chief Ed Gephardt. That's okay. And I guarantee you, everybody that I've had on the show that has worked with these people, anyone that's worked with the people that I've had on the show, they probably have something to bitch about. And I get that. Can't make everybody happy. Okay? I was a uh, Little League umpire for a year. And I sucked at it. I did. I'll, I'll, I'll own that one. Um, but that's where I learned it. I made a call and one team liked it. Another team, not so much. And then th- that's life. Okay? Um, I think you just need to evaluate what's being done and apply it to the greater good. And when I look, and again, I'm on the outside in, but when I look from the outside in and I see, I guess you could say optics, which kind of goes against what I was just saying, but that things look pretty good. You know, if I were on the job market, I'd go, let me, let me look into this place. I looked into Polk County when I was, when I was looking around, um, I didn't look into Volusia County. I didn't look into Fishers, Indiana, but you know, there's good and bad everywhere and you got, you got to decide the scale. So that being said, I know there's probably people listening who go, no, F that guy and what he stands for. What? That's fine. Okay. But what is upsetting you about him? What does he do that you don't like and what can be done to be better? That's where we differentiate between being constructive and just being whining and babies. Okay. That concludes today's episode, folks. Thank you so much for taking this trip with me. If you like what I'm doing, rate, review, subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave me a review. Give me a rate. Spotify has rating as well. No matter where you listen, share the episode. Just uh, hit the share on the Instagram post and uh, show the people that it's out there and they'll they'll be able to find it from there. Chief Gephardt's contact information is going to be in the description as well. So check that out if you want to you want to talk to him. Check out Fishers in the end if you want to work up there. If you're up there and uh, let's say you work for, I don't know, NDPD and you don't want to work there anymore, maybe you want to go up uh, 20 miles to the north to Fishers and uh, try that out for change. The music today, we had the intro song as always. Then we had um, One for the Money by... What was it? Fallen in Reverse. Right? Is that what it is? Escape the Fate. Sorry. Uh, then we had Sabotage by the Beasties. And we're going to wrap it up with Middle Finger by Ballyhoo. Going out to all the Chiefs out there that should just step down. Next week, we are going to be doing a new mini series that I'm doing. Uh, part one of it. It's called I Survived. And we're going to talk to a survivor of an active shooter. 
this took place in Thousand Oaks, California, and we're going to talk about it. He was there. He survived. We're going to talk about the mindset of survival as well as just things to take away from it. It's going to be a new miniseries. We got this, and we have another one coming down the pike. Got a couple more uh, really good episodes coming to close out uh, Season 2, and then we're going to be uh, off for a little bit, and then Season 3 will... Uh, be 10 8 as well that's going to be in october so once again guys thank you so much for listening thank you to everybody in virginia that i messaged or mentioned earlier um y'all are doing great thank you for hanging out with me we'll see you next time folks take care of each other stay safe check out the merch store 10 8 out Get fired, you know I've had it up to here And now I feel uninspired I know that this is how it goes When you're chasing a dream But now it's affecting my self-esteem Call it jumping to conclusions Call it grandeur delusions But I think that we should be on top And now I'm not just excluded Cause I feel that we have proven That we can take a good beating Maybe we've taken enough for the team So if you feel you've had enough